I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who hunger, no, no, no. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way you, they persecuted, nope, sorry, uh, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, you may be seated. She really did practice that. <laughs> I was a witness. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for reading scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is the most influential speech in human history. There is no close second. And multiple times in this single speech, what Jesus will do is he will kind of drop a bombshell that will alter the religious thought of the day. And each week that we're together, we're going to look at one of those revolutionary statements or a series of statements as it occurs today that literally changed the course of history. And today it is this idea that fortunate are the unfortunate. That's the bombshell idea. And so I'm going to jump just right into it today. And the first thing we see in the Sermon on the Mount is a glorious description As Jesus begins this sermon, he introduces this sermon with eight statements. We like to refer to them as the Beatitudes, and that word uh, Beatitude comes from the idea of somebody being blessed or the idea of blessedness, and that's what Jesus describes here in these eight statements. Uh, He describes someone who is blessed. The word that he uses is makarios. And it means blessed, but it also can mean fortunate. It can mean happy. Um, It is someone to whom we might say, congratulations. Wow, congratulations. That's a blessed person, right? And the key point here is that these statements, as we go down through them, are not instructive statements. They are descriptive statements. In other words, They are describing somebody that is already in a blessed state. This state has already been achieved. Um, I could liken it to to this, what we're going to read. In a few weeks, uh, literally in a few days, we're going to come upon March Madness, right? Any basketball fans out there? Yes. Oh, yeah. And any day now, if they haven't already done it, uh, the talking heads on ESPN and those kind of sports shows will do what they, they, they'll play a little game. They'll bring out a little board and they'll have the resumes of different teams and they'll have the team name covered up and they'll, they'll have the win and loss record and, you know, other things that they've done and the RPI and the BPI and the 
NPI, whatever, you know, and, and they'll say, okay, this team, did they deserve to get in or did, what's their resume? And then who is this team? And that's a lot uh, like what Jesus is doing here. We're looking at a resume, but whose resume is this? The, it's the resume of a fortunate person. And the fortunate person is the one who has assimilated all of these traits into his or her life. And to somebody like that, we could say, oh, congratulations, congratulations. And so it's not just the introduction that does this, actually. The rest of the sermon uh, lays out specifically what it looks like to live out this way of life, this way that is blessed. And if we just do a brief skim of the entire sermon, we find uh, things like this, that Jesus talks about our relationship with the world that we're supposed to be salt and light. And it's a way of saying that we are supposed to be influencers, that we're supposed to look around in our world and see what's broken and then go in and try to fix it and restore those things. Um, He talks about our relationship with people. He says, it's a good idea if you don't kill them. (laughs) And everybody said, duh, we know that. And then he says, he uses this phrase over and over. He says, you have heard it said, And that was the kill part. You already know that. But I say to you, and he uses this refrain, and he says there's more to it. You've heard it said that killing people is wrong, but what I'm going to tell you is that treating people like nobodies is the same thing as killing them with a knife. Wow. Integrity. He says, I want you to have integrity in the sexual realm. Don't give your body to someone unless that person is willing to share their whole life with you and you are willing to share your whole life with them. Make sure that your mind and body are one. They are in line together that they have integrity. Have integrity in your speech as well. Don't waffle around. Just let every word you say be true. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be absolutely truthful in your speech. When people respond to you with hostility, respond to them with love. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Present your your other side to people and work to restore relationships with truth and love. He says, treat the poor in a way that you don't pat yourself on the back when you do it. He says, your prayers will reveal where your heart is at. When you're alone, what do you think about? What consumes your mind? Where do your thoughts go? That's your true God. And it's not just your prayers. Your money is involved in a way too. It reveals where you are and what you worship. Where do you spend your money most effortlessly? So easy that you have to watch yourself every once in a while. And every one of us has one or two of those areas. And generosity and deep prayer are signs that we have a heart that's focused on God. And a lack of those things points to false gods, not the real God. He says, don't worry. We talked about this last week, right? Live towards God so much that you don't have to worry because you understand that he has everything under control. Worry is a way of saying, when we worry, it's a way of saying, God, I don't think you'll get this right. And it's a yet another sign of where our heart really is. And finally, um, he says, have certain attitudes about people who, in your mind, are just wrong. They're just wrong. 
they have the wrong clothes, maybe they have the wrong ideas, maybe the wrong politics, maybe the wrong religion, maybe the wrong job, maybe the wrong parenting skills, maybe the wrong efforts. They're just wrong. That's what you think. How do you approach them? Jesus says, don't approach them with judgment. It doesn't mean that you can't criticize and that we shouldn't evaluate one another and point things out so that we can improve. But judging is when we cross the line from constructive criticism to condemnation. And it is when we begin to punish somebody for their wrongness and with their wrongness. And we don't have any love, no humility, no thought of this person's best interest. That's judgment. And Jesus says, check yourself there. So how are we doing? How are we doing with all of those things? That's an overview of the whole sermon. Who's living like that? Whose resume are we looking at here? Who is blessed? And are we really living this way? Because if we did, if we really lived that way, then we would stand out. We would be lights to the world. We would be salt to the world, to the earth. Anybody want to say in here, hey, that's me? (laughs) We would say, congratulations, right? And it doesn't take but a cursory reading of this sermon, and we come to another realization. It's a horrible realization. Virginia Stearns Owen, a Christian author, was teaching literature at a major university, and she she decided to give an assignment. And she decided that all of her students would read the Sermon on the Mount and then write an essay about it. And so she gave this assignment, and she realized that none of her students had really ever read this sermon before. A number of them had never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount, and all of them were at least very unacquainted with it. And so she gave out this assignment, and she said, I want you to read it, and I want you to just write your opinion, what the, what, whatever you want, what your response is, and the essays came in. And she, she began to read the essays, and she said at first she was surprised, and then she backed up and she realized she shouldn't have been surprised. Here was the overwhelming comment from the students. They hated the Sermon on the Mount. I did tell you that it was the most influential speech in human history, right? But these, these kids hated the sermon. Here are two uh, excerpts from two different ser- uh, ser- uh, essays. Uh, he said, one says, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Here's another student's words. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I have ever heard. Now, what's, what's going on there? Here's what's going on. Likely, this sermon was being read by people without church glasses on. That's you and me. See, we're really familiar with these words, and we forget how edgy they are, how deeply they cut, and what Jesus is doing here. But if you uh, put honest ears to this sermon, You can hear it as it really is. And these students did that and they hated it because they were terrified of it and they were disgusted by it. And I was like one of those students as well. When I was in college, uh, kind of, sort of, um, I was in Bible college. So you're not really allowed to be disgusted at the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, So it was a little different in my case. 
the emotion was not disgust. It was, it was fear, fear. I remember that as I went to Ozark Christian College, I'm an 18-year-old kid, and, and I've grown up in the church, and I know a little scripture, and I know of the Sermon on the Mount. I know most of the themes in the Sermon on the Mount, but do I know the Sermon on the Mount line by line? Not really. And we're sitting in Christian ethics class, and Jim Markham, in his overly Western suit, is talking to us, and he comes on this line. He points to verse 20 of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sitting there thinking, uh-oh. Be honest. If you're hearing that for the first time, that's scary. It absolutely was to me, and it gets worse when you find out a little bit about the Pharisees. They were professional, perfect people. They were just, they were chaste, they were truthful, they were faithful, they prayed three times a day, they fasted twice a week, they tithed everything right down to the seeds that they were given for their garden. They kept dietary laws, they kept holy days, they kept all the Sabbaths, they kept feast. they were experts in making everyday items clean and holy. They tied scriptures literally in little boxes to their foreheads so that they would know it better. And I've got to be better than that to get God's congratulations. And I'm 18 years old and I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And if that's not daunting enough, Jesus will press it further in chapter five, verse 48. He will say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm. It's not just the Pharisees now I have to worry about God? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous commentator and preacher, and he said that if you look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, actually uh, what it actually says, and you really grasp it, then you will say, like these students did, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Save me from that. Because these aren't just platitudes that you can put in your pocket. These are entrance requirements for heaven, and they are steep. And there's no wonder that people say, oh, get it away from me, take it away from me, because it exposes me, and it reveals me, and it condemns me. And the reason that we absolutely should respond this way is that when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that that's exactly how we want people around us to live. Speak the truth. Oh, yeah, yeah, we want everybody to speak the truth to us. Guess what? If we want others to live like that, then it follows that we should live like that as well. But we aren't. And that's what condemns us. And so we say, take it away. And the terror of the Sermon on the Mount is that. And if you don't feel that, then you have not read the Sermon on the Mount. So what do we do about that horrible realization? In the message, there is a precious solution. And that's what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about what life is like in the kingdom of God. What would it look like if God really was king, if he really was in charge uh, of our living space, right? If, if he really was calling the shots, I, I tell you what it would mean. It would mean it would look like heaven. One day, life as it is in heaven as it is in God's space, 
will become life as we know it on earth. They will be, heaven and earth will be joined together. And Jesus in this sermon actually says, pray for that. Uh, in the, in the great, great prayer that he teaches us to pray, he says, pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day that will happen. That will change when that happens. Everything about the earth, if God's really in charge, then there's no, no more sin. There's no more corruption. There's no more decay. There's no death. Only beauty and delight that God always intended. And you can easily see that in that space, there will be a certain way of functioning, a certain way of living. And that's pretty different from the way that we're functioning right now. And the point, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is for followers of Jesus to begin living the way life will be right now, today. We are called to live right now in a way that will make sense of the future reality that God has promised. Heaven and earth will be joined together with God in charge. And in that kind of space, we don't imagine that a thing like anger would be present. And so let's start living that way today. That's the point. Don't be angry. Likewise, we believe that in heaven, everywhere there will be truth, right? And so let's try to live that way right now. Let's speak truth and so on and so forth. Love everyone, even your enemies. Be givers. Communicate with God the Father all the time. Don't worry because God is in charge. We're called not only to live out the right outward action, but to have the right inward motive as we do those things. And so when we read this sermon, our natural focus falls on doing the things that we've read. He says, don't lust. Okay, I need to get rid of lust. He says, turn the other cheek. Okay, I need to do that. He says, go to the extra mile. Okay, I need to go the extra mile. He says, deposit our treasures in heaven, not the earth. Okay, I need to do that. I need to fix my money situation. And all of these things, that's what grabs our attention. Do this, act in that way, live in this such a way, and we try to do those things. And when we focus solely on the doing, we skip the most important step. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, that we mistakenly focus on the commands of the sermon, and we forget about the conversion at the beginning. And when we, when we skip over the first one, there's no way to do the second. Before we can live what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to live, we have to become a certain kind of person. And the Beatitudes, these eight statements at the beginning of the sermon, actually tell us what kind of person we have to become. Now, the first four Beatitudes are going to tell us how we can enter the kingdom of heaven, and the, the second four Beatitudes are going to tell us how to express this new way of life that we found once we submit ourselves to God's rule. And so I just want to take the first four, and I want to talk about how what this person that we need to become looks like. First, he says, congratulations to the, sp the poor in spirit. To the poor in spirit. And that's where Christianity starts. To be poor is to be utterly dependent on someone else. The word actually means to be in a state of actually begging, down on your knees, pleading for help. Now, what does that mean to us spiritually? It means that until we are spiritually destitute and bankrupt and realize that 
there's no money in our spiritual bank account, then the kingdom of heaven doesn't have any place in our life. Now, if you found yourself in front of God this afternoon, what would you say to him? Here's the normal thing that most everybody would say, and I think we've talked about this a lot. They would say something like this. You know what? I I know I've done some lousy things, but hey, God, look at the good things that I've done. They count, right? Let's put that kind of idea in economic terms. What you're really saying to God is, I have some money in my spiritual bank account. I'm not totally destitute. I know I have debts. I know there are things that I shouldn't have done, but, but look at me helping that turtle across the road and giving money to help feed people uh, who are in famine. And, and look, at, look at me lending my ladder to my neighbor. And by the way, that should count double because while he had it, he bent it all up and I had to live with it after that, okay? So the thought is, I know I owe some things, God, but I can write a check to cover some of it and I should receive some forgiveness for the good that I have in my account. And that's the normal response. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they are bankrupt. Do you know what a Christian says to God in that same scenario? A Christian says, I have nothing to offer you. I am spiritually bankrupt and destitute and it's not just that we realize as Christians that we've done bad things. No, it's, it's that we also realize that all of those good things that we've done don't amount to any credit whatsoever in our account. There is literally zero in our account, and we know that we can never pay for the sin that is in our life. And so to be poor in spirit means that I acknowledge that I have absolutely nothing in me to recommend myself to God. Even my good record isn't good enough in any way when it comes to God. And only a Christian can say that. Only a person who is following after Jesus. Are you poor in spirit, Jesus says. Have you come to God in a bankrupt state? Congratulations, congratulations. Number two, congratulations to those who mourn, to those who mourn. The word means to have such a deep grief that it cannot be hidden. And what Jesus is talking about is to have such absolute sorrow in your bones over the sin in this world and in you that you weep. And it is to weep for the things that Jesus weeps for. Christianity begins with a sense of our sin. It is to be heartbroken for the sin and what it has done to God and what it has done to Jesus. And it is to see the cross. It is to see the havoc that has been wrought by sin. And when we have that experience, Jesus says, we will be comforted. And that experience sounds to me a lot like repentance. This constant Christian practice of recognizing the sin in our life and realizing the damage that it's doing to us and to others, and then deciding once again each morning to live differently. And that practice leads to 
congratulations. The psalmist puts it this way in 51.7 that the sacrifice God wants most from us is a broken spirit, one that mourns. It's this kind of broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. The way to joy of uh, the joy of forgiveness is through desperate sorrow and brokenness of the heart. Have you mourned your sin to the point of repentance? If so, congratulations. Here's number three. Congratulations to the meek, to the meek. Oh, I love this word because meek is best defined by a picture. And I'm gonna give you a couple pictures. We could probably give you 10 or 10 or 12, but meek could be a big, powerful horse that has a bridle on it and is controlled by a very small rider. Meek could be this, a souped-up race car that was designed to go 180 miles, 190 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour, but that race car is in a parade and it's going two miles an hour. That's meekness. It is Blessed, we could write it this way, blessed are they who have every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. And this control thing is not so much about self-control, although that's a part of it. It's more about submitting ourselves to God's control. To be meek is to humbly submit to the way the world works, that we are just creatures and that God is our creator and that without God, we can do nothing. And so meek people don't throw their weight around. They wait on God to give them their due. Most of us will go out and we'll try to conquer the earth, right? We'll try to, in Dave Ramsey's words, kill something and drag it home. That's, that's what we wanna do. But the meek know that the real prize is to wait on God and have him give us that thing that we've been after all along. And what God gives is infinitely better than anything we could take on our own. And so have you humbled yourself? Have you submitted your power so that it is directed by God alone? If so, congratulations, congratulations. Finally, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness in our culture is a lost word. Um, the only time outside of church that you ever hear righteousness talked about is when somebody refers to being self-righteous or they accuse somebody else of that. And so we need to remedy that, at least in church, and we've tried to do that around here. Righteousness just means doing the will of God, or we could substitute the word goodness for the word righteous. So happy are those who hunger and thirst after goodness. Think back. When was the last time you were really hungry? When was the last time you were really ever thirsty? There are very few of us in this room in modern conditions that really know what it's like to really hunger and really thirst I mean, maybe, maybe if we're out backpacking or hiking and we're, we're in the mountains and we get lost and we run into trouble, I mean, maybe, maybe. But that's such a remote possibility. But in Jesus' day, it was absolutely different. No one got fat on common wages in Jesus' day. Meat would have been a luxury and maybe enjoyed once every few weeks. Real starvation was a fear for 
the common person in Jesus's day. And it was even more so in the case of thirst. There were no taps, there were no water fountains. Man, everywhere we go, we have some, somewhere to go and get water, right? The, these people relied on wells for their water. Travelers could be trapped in sandstorms and choked by sand-filled wind, and they could be parched with overpowering thirst. We don't really have any equivalent to that. Um, what the text is talking about is someone who will literally die if they don't get food or if they don't get water. This is not, hey, I need a mid-morning snack or, gee, I'm thirsty, I'll take a Diet Coke. That's not it. This is life or death, starvation, dehydration. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are so hungry and so thirsty for goodness that they're about to die. And so Jesus is saying a couple things to us. Number one, he's asking us, how much do you really want goodness in your life? Is it as much as a dying person would want food or water that could save them? How intensely do you want righteousness? And in a sense, that's a really demanding line because mostly we want goodness, right? But when the time comes, we find it really hard to give up the things that would lead to goodness, and it would be like the starving person refusing food. And if they do that, they're probably not starving too much, are they? But then, this line becomes very comforting to us. It's demanding, but it's very comforting. Because listen to it. Listen to what it says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for goodness. What did you hear in that line? Did you hear this? Blessed, congratulations to those who have achieved goodness. Blessed to those who have succeeded in righteousness. No, that's not what you hear. Here's what you hear. Blessed are those who want goodness desperately. Those who are happy aren't necessarily the ones who succeed at being righteous, but those who long for it with their whole heart. Why is that important? Because if the only ones that could be called blessed were the ones who succeeded at being good, then none of us would be able to be blessed. And that's not good news. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us good news. Jesus is flipping the script. We expect that the good news is about the people who have succeeded Blessed are the people who have everything together. Well, duh, yeah, blessed are the blessed, right? That's the normal message. Jesus flips that on its head and he says, no, 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 blessed are you when you simply long for this way of righteousness. Blessed are the blessed turns into blessed are the unblessed. Fortunate are the unfortunate. Congrats to the ones who have no reason to be congratulated. And that's good news. You can be a really bad musician, but still really love music, right? And in the same way, we can be entirely steeped in sin, but still long for this goodness, this righteous kind of life. Isn't that amazing? That even in our sin, we are compelled by goodness. We understand the need for it in our life. Somebody said it this way, even in the mud, we can never wholly forget the stars. That's right. 
even if we never get to this goodness, this righteousness that we know that we should aspire to, if at the end of your life you are never able to conquer that sin that has dogged you from day one, you are not shut out from blessedness. Jesus says, (laughs) blessed are the unblessed. That's good news. So are you hungry? Are you thirsting for goodness in your life? Congratulations. Now, before we can live anything out in the Sermon on the Mount, before we get to adultery and lust and oaths and and loving our enemies, before any of that, we have to be spiritually bankrupt. We have to be people who mourn over our sin in repentance. We have to be people who submit our power to God and let him direct our lives. We have to be people who hunger and thirst for his goodness. It's to be the kind of person that knows that they need infinitely more than just a little improvement. They know that they don't just need God to get me through this thing today. No, they need absolute perfection. They need absolute righteousness. And they know they don't have it. That's a Christian. And that's the kind of person the Beatitudes describe. And unless you've gotten to, do, to that place, you'll never be able to do the things that Jesus calls you to do in the rest of the sermon. The commands of the sermon will just crush you and you'll be the student saying, get it away from me. I don't want it in my life. We need to know our need and the need is for righteousness that is found somewhere besides us. And so the question, the big question is, where in the world do we get this righteousness? And it's right here in the most obvious way, but we can miss it if we don't pay attention. There's another way to define blessed in this text. And it actually comes from an Old Testament idea of the word. In the Old Testament, when somebody was talked about as being blessed, it was to be favored and envied, like David. David was favored, and the people envied David, right? It was like, it's to be like Joshua. Joshua led the people, and he was favored by God and probably envied by a lot of people. It was to be like Samson. It was to have God's favor on your life, and people who had that were looked on by other people and envied because, why? They were the heroes, They were the rich and famous. They were the conquerors. They were the winners. And so to be blessed is to be a hero. And Jesus' Beatitudes then are the resume of a hero. It's the resume that we're looking at here. And it's the resume of an ultimate champion. And when you read these statements, you think of yourself. We think of us. We think, oh, I have to be this way, poor and mourning and weak and hungry. But there's another person in the text Before you ever put your own name in the Beatitudes, and you absolutely should, but before you do that, you should put in the name of Jesus. Before blessed describes us, blessed describes him. This is his resume. Jesus becomes utterly spiritually poor throwing off the treasures of heaven to come here to earth to take on flesh so that we could inherit God's wealth. Jesus mourned, he wept, and he died alone on a cross so that we could know comfort. Jesus was meek, he bridled his power, he stood as a lamb in front of his slaughterers under God's control so that you and I could inherit the earth, the perfect earth that 
this present earth is only the shadow of. Jesus got no mercy. No mercy from the crowd, not from Pilate, not from his father, so that we could have mercy. Jesus was pure in heart. He was laser focused on his mission, which was the cross. And that's the only reason that we get to see God. Jesus was a peacemaker. And the whole world, even God, turned against him. But his cross was about peace. And it made a bridge for those of us who were against God to be able to cross so that we can have a relationship with God once again. We can have peace with God and we can have peace with each other. Jesus was persecuted and was exalted to heaven and we get his reward as well. And so let's get this right. When we see Jesus here first in the text, it helps us to live up to the character that is fit for God's coming kingdom. The only way to be blessed as an unblessed person, to be fortunate as an unfortunate person, to be congratulated when there's no reason to be congratulated is to fall on your knees in front of Jesus. That's it. To be poor in spirit and in humility say, Jesus, I need you. I have nothing on my own. I'm gonna call the band up. And until you see Jesus as the hero, you won't be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't see Jesus first, you're going to say, God, would you save me from this sermon? But if you understand the gospel, if you understand that Jesus laid everything out for you, then you'll be able to say, God, save me, bless me, an unsaved, an undeserving sinner, save me by the name that the Sermon on the Mount shows me, and that is Jesus himself. And God will say to you, congratulations. Father, we thank you for this sermon, and it is hard. The constant question for each of us is, how do I live in this way that Jesus calls me to in this sermon? How do I, a sinner, live like a saint? How do I be perfect How can I do that? Help us to understand that it starts with knowing where our righteousness comes from. Our righteousness comes from the preacher behind the sermon. Jesus was poor so that we could be rich. And so let us accept that righteousness if we haven't. And for those of us who have accepted that righteousness, let us rest in that righteousness, knowing that we're forgiven. If we're in Jesus, We're forgiven no matter what. And that helps us live lives that are consistent with your kingdom. We are perfect in Jesus. Now let us and help us be perfect in the name of Jesus. And it's in the name of him, the righteous one, that we pray everybody said, amen. I'd like you to stand. We're gonna end with a time of worship today. And maybe you have never fallen on your knees bankrupt in front of God. Maybe you've never come to him and said, I have nothing to offer. Maybe you're still on that track where you're like, oh God, I did some good things. That won't work. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. If you need to accept him, if you need to fall down in front of his face today, you come as we sing.